I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Today on the Magical Mystery Tour, a conversation with Chris Heggie. Chris Heggie is a graduate of Goddard College's Graduate Institute. I had the pleasure of sitting down with her a couple of weeks ago when she was back on campus as a visiting scholar. In this conversation, we talk about freedom of speech, political correctness, rigorous inquiry, and the ability to have difficult conversations across a spectrum of boundaries at a time of extreme polarization throughout our society. When did you graduate here? I graduated in 2015. From Goddard's Graduate, graduate Institute. Yes. And this past weekend, you gave the keynote address. The address was for the residency. It was, it was supposed to speak to the residency theme of Why Beliefs Matter. I was invited as the visiting scholar. I think every semester they do a visiting scholar. And I was invited this time, and I was really excited to participate. So how much time were you given to prepare for this? Three weeks. Really? Yes. Wow. Because I read what you sent me, and I was really impressed. It looked like you did a lot of research. And three weeks is stunning. Yes, I pretty much dropped my PhD work for a little while. Then I sent off a note to my professors to say I'm not going to be submitting anything for a few weeks while I pull this together. Uh huh. So this topic of why beliefs matter, how do you relate to this topic? 
I struggled with it a little bit because the first word that came to mind when I heard about beliefs, when I thought about that was religion, and I, I'm not a religious person. So I had to think about what beliefs meant in the context of Goddard. So I you know, bounced that idea around in my head for a little bit, and I looked at the Goddard mission, and the Goddard's mission statement kind of drew me into the idea of rigorous inquiry and what does that mean and uh, what does that mean in a time of polarization and some of the silencing that might be happening and those beliefs that are silenced because we're in such a polarized time across all kinds of spectrums of of our existence so that's kind of where i came into this idea of academic freedom and controversial conversations on campus yeah so in our broader society we are experiencing what seems to be an unprecedented degree of polarization. I've been hearing interviews or people talking about history of this country and making the case that this isn't really any more polarized than, than it's been at, at other times. But in our time, for us, this seems to be the peak or maybe getting worse and worse and worse progressively. Yeah, I stumbled upon a study in the course of doing this research, which looked at freshmen coming into universities, and I looked at freshmen over time. And what we're seeing now is actually an increase in the polarization. People aren't coming in with uh, kind of a middle-of-the-ground, uh, moderate viewpoints. They're coming into the freshman class with divergent viewpoints more than they have in the past. According to the study, I can't you know, say for certain if that's... And does this mean that people are coming in bringing their own strong opinions and beliefs about things? Yes, I think, you know, what I'm seeing on, like, social media and how technology is influencing the information we receive, um, and we're receiving information more than going out and asking for it. I think as younger people come into college that have been immersed in this technical world for so long and have just had information fed to them. The information bubbles that we're seeing are becoming stronger, uh, more influential in their thinking coming in. So, Now, Goddard is a pretty unique institution of quote-unquote higher learning. Yes. Um, I went to a more traditional college for a semester and a half and quickly realized that it wasn't for me and dropped out. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't go to Goddard, Mm -hmm. but I've been here, and for the past three years, I've been interviewing Goddard students and faculty and alum, and I've been really amazed at the environment here, Mm -hmm. the environment that nurtures a very different kind of learning or, or approach to learning, which to me makes total sense, but it's radically, I mean, it would seem to be radical in contrast to the way other universities do things. Um, The notion of true academic freedom, you know, I think all colleges and universities pay at least lip service to that and rigorous inquiry, they talk about that, but unless a student brings their own intention and aspiration to pursue that, the institutions don't overtly encourage that. 
or they don't talk about that, or or that's all they do is they talk about it, mm -hmm. but they don't implement it. That they have this agenda to teach certain things in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, have you observed that at all? Absolutely. I look at the pedagogy of the oppressed and Frary's discussion of the banking model of education, and I think in most higher education that is still the model where professors are sages on the stage, so to speak, and they're like experts. experts in their fields, yeah. and they choose these textbooks, and they prescribe the learning that is going to happen. And if you've managed to acceptably regurgitate that learning, then they sign off on the fact that you have achieved this status. And at Goddard, it's a very different approach where the learning has to come from within to some degree, to a large degree, actually. And, and then you go out and you find resources and you collaborate with your advisor to shape an education that is true to yourself and to the world. So when you say your education comes from within, what do you mean by that? It means starting from something that you're passionate about, whatever that is in the world, and finding the, the places of agreement and disagreement with whatever that passion is. So, you know, in my case, I did my work on rape culture and restorative justice, and I was doing work in a restorative justice project, volunteer work in a restorative justice project, so I kind of saw how that was going, and I was really concerned about, about women violence against women in the world and um, wondered what could be done to serve that community. So I came from passions from multiple places in my, in my world and questioned and reflected on those things and found ways that the restorative justice model wasn't working and tried to find a place where these things could come together and built a framework for supporting survivors in the same way that restorative justice circles that I was working in were supporting people that were coming out of prison as part of the model. So that was taking my passions and my work in the world and bringing it to my education and having my education then inform that and, and change some of the ways I was going about that work. That's so radically different from the institutionalized way of, of as you said, regurgitating information data, statistics, history, or an institutionalized view of the world. That you're, sounds like what you're doing is you're engaging your own experience, your own passions, your own interest, and interrelating with what you see out there in the world and trying to formulate some new way of navigating everything or, or to change, to improve things. Precisely, yes. I think that's – you've nailed it. <laughs> and that seems to be the essence of what Goddard pedagogy is. It's about bringing our own desires, our own passions, our own true interests, you know, what we're really deeply most interested in mm -hmm. and interfacing it with the world around us in the hopes of making this a better world, a better experience for not only for us, but for everybody else. Right. Yes. I think that's that's what Goddard excels at. I think it's a it's a great place to interrogate our own beliefs, to find out where we're 
might have biases that, that we didn't even recognize when we came in. You know, I looked at the restorative justice model from a very idealistic viewpoint when I started. And by the end, I saw some fractures in it that I was like, mm, maybe this isn't as victim-centric as we claimed it was. And then I brought those ideas about the victim's agency into the restorative justice model that I was working in. So it, it definitely interfaced with my, my work in the world, at least the volunteer work in the world, in a way that actually challenged some of that work as well. I'm really curious about this self-discovery of our own biases, mm -hmm. you know, our own beliefs, lingering beliefs, our opinions, the things that we tend to believe are right because it's really the only thing we have to work with. And I've, I know this about myself and I see it with everybody else that we get very insecure about our relationship to the world and we, we find ourselves often totally unconsciously defending these positions that were totally unconscious of where they came from or how real they are or how they really relate to the, what's going on in the world. And yet we, in a sort of unquestioning way, assume that everything we think is true, is real. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's, that's really kind of insane. Yes. <laughs> Especially when you, we live in a world with so many people who all have their own personal versions of reality and truth and what's right and wrong, and everyone's bouncing off each other. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, they're bouncing off with, with a kind of crazy violence. Absolutely, yes. And the violence happens within our circles as well as between them. I've seen a lot of like virtual signaling in in the left, you know, where say that say that again. A virtue signaling where if you don't have things, you know, exactly right, if somebody recognizes that you've had a bias or you've had some kind of unnuanced perspective on something, you can get, you know, pretty shot down even within kind of left or I don't, I'm not inside the right circles, so I can't see that, but I would expect that some of that might happen um, there too, where if you don't follow the party line exactly mm -hmm. on certain things that are given truths, then you don't fit anymore and you're ostracized in ways that are really destructive, I think, to working in alliance. Yeah. Also known as political correctness. Correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which... There's a lot of new terminology coming out to talk about all of these dynamics. Mm -hmm. And I find it very challenging to keep up with it all. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder, where does, where, where does all this new terminology come from? And why this movement to make things, you know, communication and, and understanding so much more complicated rather than, than seeking a more simple way of being able to level the playing field for everybody? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think about a term like intersectionality and how that term was developed, I believe, to encompass a lot of thought that had come before it. And you can't, in the course of a conversation, when you're talking about that particular idea be able to say all of the things that led up to that idea. So we come to this point where we need to develop a single word to encompass a big idea. 
And then when more nuance is brought into that original idea, then we decide that that word doesn't fit anymore necessarily. So we move on to the next one. Or the other thing I think that happens is words get demonized, right? So political correctness has become, you know, a stamp of something we get uncomfortable talking about, I think, because it has been used as a cudgel, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those things happen. And it's become such a minefield. And traditionally, the nature of a minefield is that the minds remain static, right? Right. And after a certain bit of direct experience or mapping, you know where the minds are. But nowadays, it's shifting. And it's shifting very rapidly. Right. Right. And then if you don't keep up exactly right, then then you're, you know, you're just not in the game anymore. (laughs) Not only you're not in the game or not with it, but you can be, I mean, you know, somebody who who sees themselves as as a very caring, progressive, socially engaged person can be shot down for the slightest little infraction of speech. You know, saying something that that's offensive to somebody for some really minor little hair-splitting distinction. Right. Or at least it seems that way to me. Right. And I think then that gets conflated with a much bigger problem of hate speech. Right. I think too often hate speech is being used as a term that will lose meaning, unfortunately, because it's being used for mere offenses and not for what... I think the term was originally meant to mean, which is, you know, threats and, you know, brutality, Mm -hmm. right? Intentional brutality against an identity group. But now it's just, if you're offended, that gets portrayed as hate. And I, I find that really problematic. And there's an increasing movement in our culture and our society and institutions to protect people from experiencing any kind of social discomfort around this kind of stuff. So there's mm-hmm. a kind of, there's well, it's not even a kind of, but there's this legislative attitude that we have to restrict speech. We have to restrict certain perspectives or even, you know, talking about anything. It's making it so that we can't have meaningful conversations about things. We're no longer, I mean, we're, we're narrowing the playing field, the opportunities for learning, for academic and creative freedom. Like, I think about artists. You know, artists tend to be outrageous. Mm -hmm. They tend to push the limits. And one of the ways that they do that is to go for people's sensitive spots, right? That's the way you provoke change and awareness. Yes. And nowadays, our institutions and political factions are getting very insulated and we're forming these choirs where we're defending these very narrow perspectives. People who you would think would be more progressive and open about things are actually becoming more radically narrow-minded about things and militant. It's like the left, which has often been identified with the peace movement, are becoming quite militant. Yes, yes. I've seen that play out in, you know, riots in Berkeley lately. Uh, And it just, I think it's really dangerous to the academic enterprise. 
that we're not able to speak across difference, we're not able to engage difference. And it's always, given the context, it's always the people on the margins that are shut down. So at Berkeley, you're seeing people with more conservative or even, you know, ideas that I might find heinous being shut down because they're marginalized within that context. And you'll see different people marginalized in, like, say, Liberty University, right? So that's why I came to this as it's really important to protect the speech that we're currently seeing shut down because even if I hate it, even if it's loathsome and I disagree with it, because it's always those that are on the margins within a given context that are shut down. And, you know, in a lot of contexts, I'm on the margins. So I don't want to be shut down. So I have to think about it in terms of, you know, who's got power in this context. Mm-hmm. Not maybe, maybe not in the world or in, in the nation, but in the given context. Right. So in some ways, it's very obvious why we need to protect everybody's ability to speak freely. And yet there are also other consequences when we shut that down, when we shut down certain marginalized groups. Could you talk about some of these other potential consequences? Like, for one thing, I think we're seeing a backlash of people who, who won't stand for being marginalized by their culture. For example, I think we're seeing that very dramatically with the right, like the white supremacist movement and you might even call it the Trumpian um, (laughs) realm. Yes, yes. I think um, what we've seen is a lot of ideas being pushed under the carpet, you know, being pushed underground. And because they haven't been engaged. Or trying to push them underground. And what's happening is they're actually erupting violently out above ground. Exactly. I think that's the result of having been pushed under the ground, underground. Um, I think things fester and things get more and more ugly. And explosive. Um, and then, and then you know, a match is lit. Like Trump just had to light a match here. Mm-hmm. And we've seen the explosion that has happened because none of these ideas went away because they were silenced. They were right. never completely silenced, but they none of them went away. They were just unpopular. That's they were right. socially unpopular. So as you said, they went underground. Right. They were pushed underground. And now it's like, They've been given license to come out. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and many of us are shocked and stunned by this. They're so like, where did this come from? But we've seen it on our side, right? We've okay. seen like the eruption in the civil rights movement. We've seen you know leftist movements come out strong because the ideas were pushed underground for so long, and it's not. It's not new that we're seeing this now because we've we've not engaged with the bad ideas that you know are ideas that we think are loathsome. We're 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 not willing to step back, ask questions, find out how these mechanisms work and address them at the root. You know, we just push them away and decide that they're not welcome in our spaces. So it sounds like what you're alluding to is is the way we're denying the not just the humanity of the other side, but also what to them are their legitimate concerns that they are trying, that they're fighting for, that we are marginalizing, that we're trying to push down and say, that's not okay, or 
there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Absolutely. You're evil or something like that. You're wrong. You're bad. That kind of thing. Yes. yes. The things that we, we've all grown up with, you know, as children in society. And I think we all have a, a very, on some, in some way, different for different people, but we all have a strong response against that in one way or another, whether we do it overtly or whether we shut down inwardly. Right, right. So there's something fundamentally unhealthy about that, and yet we don't seem to learn from our own personal experience, and we are all doing that to each other and perpetuating that. And at the beginning of your keynote that you sent to me, you mentioned something about um, thinking about beliefs and that you don't, you don't think in those terms. You tend to think in terms of systems and constructs and the way the world beats us down. And here's the key line, the way you contribute to the hardships of others. Right. Right. You know, I think... Something that we tend not to think about because we think that we're right and we're good and, and our, our motivations are noble. But you're asking a, a really deep question about yourself here. Yeah, I think one of the things that instilled in my education at Goddard and before Goddard, I was at the Union Institute University's ADP program before, which was born at Goddard. So it's the same model. Unfortunately, Union has stopped doing their ADP program, but the model was there. And part of that model just instilled self-reflectivity. And part of what I was studying was feminist history. So I spent a lot of time looking at systems and how systems work together and systems of oppression. And because my education was self-reflective, I look at myself as a woman who experiences oppression from a sexist position. I experience myself as a lesbian who experienced oppression from that perspective. And as a butch, non-gender conforming dyke, there's a lot of oppression that happens there. But I also am white, you know, and I recognize that I also experience privilege that has an impact on others and, you know, try to figure out how that privilege impacts others in a way that I can try to use that privilege for good. And that doesn't mean necessarily trying to hand power over. That's not how it works, I don't think. I think it's being as much as possible in coalition and allyship with people that I may be harming in a way that I'm not necessarily conscious of. Speaking of doing harm to others, this is the Magical Mystery Tour, and I'm talking with Chris Hagee. She's a graduate of Goddard College's Graduate Institute, and we're talking about freedom of speech, political correctness, rigorous inquiry, and the ability to have difficult conversations across a spectrum of boundaries at a time of extreme polarization throughout our society. So it seems like we're all harming other people, maybe not all the time, but, but more or less on a continual basis without being at all aware of how the things we do or the way we, our attitudes and our beliefs, not only about the world, but about ourselves in relation mm -hmm. to the world, affect other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at my own genealogy, right? And my family's been in Vermont since before it was a state. So I can't even figure out where my people came from. But 
I know as a white person and from a very white state that I have a colonizer's history, right? Um, so I have to think about how the privilege that comes from that has an, a generational, intergenerational impact on people that haven't had that privilege, you know, or the people that were colonized in this experiment we call the United States, right? And what role I have in that now, even though I wasn't the one that did it, you know? I'm really curious how you see that dynamic for yourself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. personally in terms of how you can even begin to take any sort of sense of responsibility for that and what you feel your responsibility would be. Is it purely intellectual or is there more to it than that? I think it's a consciousness of, you know, how, how I try to go about doing things in the world, how I do research, whose words I pay attention to, you know, whose ideas are allowed to come to the forefront of my mind. So that's an intellectual thing, but it's also because my scholarship hopefully goes out in the world, I have an opportunity because I come from a privileged position, not economically or not, you know, in some ways socially, but to amplify voices, to put the loudspeaker on other people's voices wherever possible. Well, it also seems like it gives us more fuel and impetus to continue to do that inner rigorous inquiry because of the assumptions that we may have made that like we may make the assumption that we're just another human being just like everybody else mm -hmm. and not tend to think about, oh, maybe my position as a white person is different, is fundamentally and profoundly different in many different ways from another person's experience in the same world. Yes. In the same circumstances. Yes, I think, you know, we are treated differently in the world um, based on how people perceive us. And, you know, I can see that as, you know, a gender nonconforming person, right? So I can see how I am treated in the world that might be different from another person, another white person, another white woman, because I don't fit some kind of stereotype or I don't fit some kind of model of what a woman should be. And I think I can then try to relate that experience to a position where I do have privilege and how someone might perceive me versus a person of color. You know, that, oh, well, I experience oppression this way and I know it's not going to be the same, but I can empathize a little bit with how the experience might be different because the norm, you don't fit the norm in some way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that makes me think of curiosity, mm -hmm. you know, like genuine curiosity mm -hmm. that inspires us to ask other people questions, you know, the kind of questions that we wouldn't normally think of, that wouldn't normally occur to us, like to ask them, well, what's your experience like? as if our experience isn't everything, right? right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a, a tricky dynamic because, 
you know, whose responsibility it is to do this emotional work. You know, so there's a challenge to making sure you're in a space where it's safe and that you have some kind of comfort level and experience on a different level before you just go asking people about their experience, I think is is an important uh, thing to keep in mind (laughs) when we do this. But I think it's important to ask and not assume because it's really easy to make assumptions about what people think or what people experience based on, you know, the stories we make up in our heads, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think about how when we were children, we were very naturally curious. I mean, we Mm -hmm. were intensely curious. We were so curious that we drove our parents crazy (laughs) the way we would ask about everything and why. Right. Why? Or what is this? Why? Why? (laughs) And now we do the opposite, Mm -hmm. or that's the way we've been programmed Mm -hmm. in our culture to... It's as if there's this unspoken notion that the sign of success, of being strong, a modern adult, is that you don't need to ask questions because you already know it all. Mm-hmm. You've already got it figured out. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think this is a, a pervasive idea in academia as well. Even though we talk about rigorous inquiry, I think one of the ideas that kind of bubbled to the surface while I was working on this keynote was epistemic humility and the idea that, you know, maybe we don't know. And that's kind of led to thinking a little bit more about the idea of having a thesis and, and reading the experts and coming up with an idea that we think is true and having certainty about that. You know, at the end of the thesis, we have a conclusion that says this is the truth, right? Or this is what we believe to be the truth. And there's this certainty in that, which I'm kind of playing with the idea of what would a scholarship of uncertainty look like? Like, what would it, what would happen if we presented a thesis with the conclusion that we don't know? You know, this is something we don't know, and maybe we can't know. That's just kind of a a new idea that I'm bubbling with in, in kind of an educational philosophy kind of way. Or maybe an intermediary stage of, well, this is what I've been able to ascertain so far. Yes. But going by the historical evolution of knowledge and information and understanding, I can't help but acknowledge that obviously I'm going to learn more and we're going to discover new things, and the knowledge and understanding of this topic is going to expand mm-hmm. way beyond what I've come to. So I can't really look at what I'm offering as being any great thing, necessarily. Right. <laughs> it's just a step along the way. Right. And ideally, that's where we, you know, we hope academics are. But I think, you know, we come to these things, and as we were talking about earlier, we're so certain that we're right about things on, you know, across the political spectrum. And sometimes I think about the political spectrum as a circle because the extremes tend to come together. Yes. But that's, um, <laughs> a, that's an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, but we're so certain. Mm-hmm. We're so certain. I'm wondering if, if we can look at, look at the world with a, a, a greater level of uncertainty, then we'll be more open, I think, to asking the questions to hearing things that we find uncomfortable, things that grate against us a little bit. Because if we're a little less certain of our position, there's the potential 
for hearing others that's not there when we are in our position of certainty. Right. Um, like the, the old metaphor of having our cup full. Yes. It's like there's no room for anything else exactly. in there. Exactly. It's like that old thing of being full of ourselves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> or more pejoratively, full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> Human beings are funny creatures. <laughs> you know, one of the phrases that comes up in my in my work, I'm a data engineer, but one of the phrases that comes up in my work frequently is we never learn anything by doing it right the first time. <laughs> and then we fall back into our old traps, <laughs> our old <laughs> delusions yeah, yeah. over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I think we can experience that starting to happen in those moments when we start to get defensive or we start to feel, you know, really uncomfortable. I think those are the moments when we when we can expand our understanding of the world around us. If we can just be in that moment instead of running from it. You know, like if we can just figure out how to live with a little discomfort. Yeah, I love that you just brought that up because that seems to be so critically important. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to cultivate that ability to be present? Mm -hmm in our discomfort and our vulnerability in the moment when we feel most threatened and most insecure? Uh, besides, you know, Particularly thousands of in, dollars of therapy. Right, <laughs> right. Particularly in relationship to a world around us that yeah. we may feel is, is potentially dangerous and hostile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of goes against all the notions of instinctive self-preservation. Right? It does. It does. It does. You know, we we only put the hand on the iron so many times before you figure out that it's hot and you don't want to do that anymore. I think exposing oneself to mild discomfort, you know, if we can if we can talk to somebody, if we can sit in a room with somebody who we share certain common values. So you're taking it gradually? Taking it starting gradually. Starting with baby steps? Yeah. You know, I think about, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying feminist history, and I think about kind of separatist spaces. And I think about how in some of those spaces, people were able to come together with a commonality, mm -hmm. right? And then within those spaces, be able to talk about the things that are different, because they come from kind of a loving, caring place of things we have in common. And, you know, recognizing the humanity of the person across from us, because we know that we're the same in this way, we can then touch on those tougher topics a little bit better. So, you know, I think that's the first step might be finding your commonality. If you can find the commonality, like we're both students committed to social justice work, okay? So for both students committed to social justice work, but we don't agree on this thing, you know, how can we come together and talk about it? Mm -hmm. Because we both have the same, perhaps, or a similar vision of the future. I talk about the political spectrum as, as a circle. circle yeah. You know, we come at these things from very different points of view, perhaps. But I think ultimately, for many... The vision is to be in a place that works for us, for the common good. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily believe that's true of, you know, like white supremacists kind of, you know, but their common good uh, I mean, is different from my common good. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, possibly we could learn to peacefully coexist with white supremacists if they 
didn't have an agenda of hurting non-white people. If there could be a, a live and let live mm-hmm. thing happening, they could believe whatever they want as long as they're not harming other people and restricting the freedom to be for other people. Yeah, I mean, I think if we think about what we believe strongly in, that they might find threatening. Oh, yeah, they do. Right? I mean, and they do. We can see, like, people like Donald Trump are playing on those differences, on those sort of manufactured fears right, right. about that what the left taking. is imposing upon them, that we're trying to bring in all these immigrants who are going to steal all our tax dollars, mm-hmm. who the right doesn't believe we should be paying at all. Mm-hmm. Right. We want less government. We don't want to pay for all this this liberal democracy crap. <laughs> right. Yeah. But the military, on the other hand. Anyway. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. They'll spend endless amounts of money and railroad everybody into paying outrageous amounts of money for this military expansion, mm-hmm. which to many of us is completely insane. Right. But to them, you know, they seem to live in a, a world of fear. Fear, yes. And, and that's what's important to them. Right. And we do too, but we fear different things. Exactly. We fear different things. You know, we're not afraid necessarily of immigrants coming across the border because right. we see, we, we, we don't necessarily believe the rhetoric of they're going to take our jobs. We've got low unemployment. You know, it's not happening. It's and just also not the happening. Jobs, and the jobs that they tend to take are the ones that we don't white want. people don't want. Right. Exactly. exactly. So maybe if we could come to terms with that common ground of fear. We're all afraid. And we're all afraid because I, I, well, I don't know why we're all afraid, but an (laughs) idea that I have about why we're afraid is because what you talked about earlier, some of the kind of the legislative approach to getting things done or to to making ourselves safe Mm. um, kind of puts us in a position of you know, the parent and the child, you know, we have to go ask permission or we have to go, we have to get the rules changed, you know, in this kind of uh, power structure that we're... Or we have to follow the rules. Yes. We have to play the game correctly. And and who makes up the rules? (laughs) And who has the right to make up these rules? And in this country, we elect people to Mm -hmm. do that. And we've come to the point where we elect, we play this game where we elect who we believe to be the lesser of two evils. Right. And it's progressively getting worse and worse. I mean, originally the idea was to elect people that we felt would represent us. But I don't think anybody can look at any of these legislators and see them as actually representing us. Now what it is is these people are going to do the least damage that we can imagine (laughs) compared to the other person who's even worse. Right, right. You know, I kind of look at party politics and the idea that we can only have two and, you know, people are vilified if they step outside of that two. Like we can only hold two possibilities in our brain at any time. Or they're totally marginalized. Right. Anybody, an independent is like... You're not real. You're not real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're not relevant. You don't have the political machine backing us. We're not questioning the machine. Right. In this in this case, we're, we don't question that machine at all. We, we're not questioning we, the system. We're, we're just questioning the symptoms. That's right. <laughs> we're only looking at the symptoms. We're only trying to fix this particular thing or this particular thing right. because this is all that we have room on our plate right now right. to look at. 
Yeah. Because we're these pea-brained creatures. <laughs> and and we have trouble talking to each other. We have trouble working in coalition now. I think, you know, that's kind of a, a bit of a culture shift that we've seen where we're, you know, tearing each other apart, even with people that we agree with on 90% of what we're thinking. We still tear each other apart. And then how do we work in coalition on anything? That reminds me how I think this general malaise of insecurity that I think almost all human beings experience, mm -hmm. that one of the ways, the unconscious ways we try to assuage it is by cutting others down. Mm -hmm. And that for many people, that's the only way we know how to make ourselves feel better mm -hmm. or give ourselves the illusion of feeling better. Right, right. <laughs> oh, I feel much better now because I can see that <laughs> they feel worse. <laughs> yeah, sadly, that's... So it's like the opposite of, of pursuing what's most important to us and what's most meaningful to us. It's like we don't even think about what we really want and what's most important to us. Mm -hmm. We're only thinking on these very petty sort of levels. Right, right. And I think, you know, getting back to kind of an academic, heady kind of space here, I think we can look at ideas about deconstructivism and, and things like that, which have really broken down like class politics, you know, like people being able to come together within a specific class of people, women or people of color or, you know, any of these classes. Instead, we've kind of broken those down and have come to a more individualistic place where each individual has a lot of separate identities that come together in this unique cluster. And because this is my unique and give some examples to, to help flesh that out. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I described myself a little earlier, mm -hmm. right? I am, yep. I am female. I am butch. You know, I am a lesbian. You know, all of these individual pieces of identity make up a whole. But I have to align with my lesbianism to participate in one area. I have to align with gender identity in another area to participate. And sometimes those things don't agree. Or I have different areas of my political, you know, ideology. If I want to be in feminist space, which might be different from queer space, it's broken up the ability for these groups of people to work together, even if we exist across these groups. And I kind of blame some of the deconstructivists postmodern kind of theories that have ignored the materiality of our lives and, and kind of put it all in headspace. It's been a real challenge working in coalitions across difference. So it sounds like what you're alluding to is we're using language to try and formulate systems of understanding. And you're talking about a kind of untethered struggle to understand and quantify identities mm -hmm. and the issues that go with them? Mm -hmm. I think theorizing about identity abstracts from the human experience of those identity categories. So, The real down-to-earth experience yeah, that we all have. Like, what's it like to walk through the earth, you know, as a woman? What's it like to walk through the earth as, you know, a lesbian? What does that feel like? or what actually happens to you when you do that has been because we're talking in abstracts, you know, we're all individuals. We all intersect along 
multiples of these abstractions. It's like Legos, right? We're, we're put together by a bunch of Legos. But we or have to be torn apart and, in, uh, order to, in order to work in queer spaces or work in feminist spaces or work in women's spaces or work in you know, all these different spaces. We have to choose the mode that we're working in in that moment instead of like, being able to come together. Kind of like, I'm trying to think about this. I can't deal with that right now. <laughs> well, I think we're forced to do that because I think some of the disagreements that we're unable to, to come together on are played out even in spaces that we might have been able to share common ground because we can't talk about the things that are different mm-hmm. about us, that we're intimidated by perhaps those... Afraid of stepping on one of those minds. shifting minds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we don't, we're not sure where it is anymore. <laughs> right, And right. so we're afraid to do anything. Yeah. So, Be ourselves. Yeah, and what are, what are the power dynamics in those, in those spaces? You know, right. and can I be my full self in this space, but not that space? And, and who do we perceive as who's determining the rules of this new game? Right. That's constantly shifting, and we're not being given the rules. Right. We have to step on the mind right. to discover how things have changed. Absolutely, and that's, you know, a really painful experience, you know, when you believe that you are in a safe place, and then and then you step on one of those minds. It's... Stressful. It's yeah. It's stressful. Becomes, it's painful. It's you know. Life loses its fun. <laughs> That's right. Which reminds me of what I love about interviewing Goddard students, particularly during residencies. Mm-hmm. I see something that I experienced when I was young, living in, in a wonderful community many years ago. That most of the people that come to Goddard for the residency, the seven or eight day residency, they feel like they're in heaven mm-hmm. because they're in this environment where. Everybody is so open and accepting and ecstatic about this realization of this open, supportive space Mm -hmm. where everyone can truly be who they are and express whatever is going on inside of them. And everybody is experiencing this kind of love affair with their experience of this and with each other, That seeing that the other person is so much like they are. Mm And they're vulnerable, and they've been struggling out in the world, and they're discovering who they really are and what's most important to them. And that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to do. And it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, and, I, and I agree with that kind of utopic vision of Goddard, but I also know that there are topics that are minefields here as well. And we have to be really conscious of and interrogate our own power structures, even the ones that are not written down. But we do have to recognize what's not being said in these spaces. Sometimes I think that the perception that everyone is politically left, you know, and it's true, probably most of the people that do come here are politically left. But if you have some nuanced viewpoints on some of these topics, you could be in that space where you're you self-silence you know i think self-silencing is not as visible as kind of the protest kind of silence but i think we do have to interrogate how our perception in the world influences who says what here as Mm -hmm. well i particularly love interviewing people who have different perspectives Mm -hmm. because i find that really refreshing to me it doesn't matter at all whether i agree with them specifically. Right. But I thoroughly enjoy seeing people feeling like they can express 
their perspectives and talk about where they're at mm-hmm. in their life and what's mm-hmm. meaningful for them mm-hmm. and why it's meaningful for them without any of the judgment or qualitative evaluations of it right. necessarily. Right. And I think Goddard is better than most places at that. And I, you know, I give a lot of credit to Goddard for creating this kind of really unique place for exploring ideas. But, you know, we can always do better, right? Right. And also, <laughs> going back to what you had said about all well and good, this utopic vision of mm-hmm. things or even experience that happens here a lot, mm-hmm. there are also these other experiences. I mean, we experience everything the full spectrum, right. and often perhaps even more amplified mm-hmm. because of the, the energy level here. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, getting, feeling shut down here, I think it's more painful mm-hmm. than when we feel shut down in other aspects of the world. Or it's more of an existential crisis. Yeah, it, it yeah. really is like, oh, you know, I didn't expect, you know, that here. So because I didn't expect that I here. Thought you, I thought you guys <laughs> were really open and, and accepting of, of everything. What happened? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like oh. you're not who I thought you were. Exactly. Or... So the the utopia becomes dystopic at least right. for a little bit, and then, you know, hopefully you can you can shift back in and you can find the person with a hug, right? But right. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I've also experienced here and in the community that I was living in. We all had our issues. I was much younger, mm-hmm. and no matter how idyllic the structures of the system or the community may be. As individuals, we all have our crap that we have to deal with, and it comes up continually in response to all kinds of things. And it's how we stay open to working with that. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like these environments are sort of like spontaneous environments where we have non-institutionalized therapy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because everything's coming up and we're having to deal with it. And I think these environments support dealing with those things, Mm -hmm. support having these difficult and uncomfortable conversations Mm -hmm. with ourselves as well. And I think it, it has to begin within ourselves. Yes. And then we can do it with other people, Mm -hmm. particularly around really touchy areas when we discover the rough edges of each other. Yes. Or how they rub in what (laughs) we traditionally call the wrong way. That's right. (laughs) Oh, there's a shark skin there. (laughs) (laughs) So I love the way this, it's kind of like accelerating real life in Mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. Yeah. You get to put away, you know, we call it like adult camp, right? Sometimes we think about it as a camp, but, you know, it you get to put away like some of your everyday, like, okay, I'm going to pay the rent and I've got to do the dishes and I've got to cook the food and I've got to do all of these everyday things. We get to put all of that away. And it's a very, very privileged thing to be able to do. Yes. To put all of that stuff away to focus on ourselves and the world around us. And to focus on what we're most passionate about working on. Yes. And it's done in an academic setting where you're working with a professor or an advisor who's, quote unquote, the expert. But (laughs) their expertise is not so much in the expertise of specific knowledge, Mm -hmm. but the expertise of facilitating your own innate, unique process. Yes. They're experts in scholarship. They're experts in 
asking the questions that kind of force us to go or hopefully force us at least invite us to go deeper or wider in our thinking, you know, to bring in perspectives, hopefully bring in perspectives that might challenge us in new ways. And if we truly engage with that, that might brighten or enhance or deepen our scholarship. So they're experts in asking the right questions. And that's been one of the things that I mentioned in my keynote is the times that I've had my ideas changed about anything has been when somebody's asked a critical question. It's not when somebody, you know, smashes a fist on the table and tells me that I'm wrong. It's always when somebody says, well, what about? How about? What do you think about? You know, here's another perspective, you know. Speaking of other perspectives, this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Goddard College Community Radio. I'm talking with Chris Hege. She's a visiting scholar at Goddard College's Graduate Institute, and we're talking about freedom of speech, political correctness, rigorous inquiry, and the ability to have difficult conversations across a spectrum of boundaries at a time of extreme polarization throughout our society. You know, I, I think a lot about Goddard's faculty, you know, and at least the ones that I've worked with. And, and For the example, ones that who, I've to. who have you, who did you work with? I worked with uh, Ellie Epp my first semester. I've heard um, a lot about she, her. She retired uh, just after I finished. And Susan Pearson, who she also retired, but she was a very gentle soul. I really appreciated working with her and Lisa Weil. I love Lisa Weil. Yes, yes. She's still here and she's still plugging away. And yeah, I, I had phenomenal experiences of being pushed to look at things that I was afraid of, and not pushed but questioned, just just invited to look, go deeper, go deeper, is a common. And, and get that <laughs> ball rolling of perpetuating that ongoing self-inquiry. Yes. Keep going deeper. Keep going deeper. Keep questioning things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that informs how we go out in the world, I think, to some degree. Like, it's a model, right? It's a yeah. model for doing this work. How to be ourselves. Yeah. 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 Interrogate those deeply held beliefs. Right. One of the things that I really love about the model here is kind of the vulnerability on both sides. Like, you know, faculty telling you their stories as well and relating to what you're writing and reacting to what you're writing in ways that are really personal as well as scholarly. You know, like I was really surprised sometimes by how intimate, not in a cozy, cuddly way, but an intimate relationship developed between myself and my faculty that continues in some cases, that I still come to them and and talk to them about things that, you know, are going on in life and in the world, just because we developed that Mm -hmm. through that time. And I think that's one of the incredible strengths of Goddard is the way faculty aren't supervisors, so to speak. They're co-learners. They're co-creators of our intellectual development and our scholarship. They're like big brothers or big sisters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Helping us on the way. Yeah. It's a beautiful model. I think that Goddard has done a, a wonderful job of maintaining that core of this kind of version of the Oxbridge model, you know. I don't know what that is. Oh, Oxford and Cambridge in England. The kind of Socratic method a little bit, but not in a camera question, but one-on-one tutorials. Okay, got it. Yeah, the Oxbridge model, yeah. which we don't see much anymore. It's I, the opposite of extreme of these huge 
lecture halls listening to one person just pontificate. Pontificating, exactly. <laughs> and there's no conversation because right. there's no time. There's no right. opportunity. Right. It's absolutely the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find Goddard? How did you discover Goddard and, and end up coming here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I started out way back when I was a student at Trinity College of Vermont, but I wasn't ready to be a student at that point. And then I went off and I started a career and, and whatnot. And I went to Keene State College as a computer mathematics major. And then one day I was in uh, Brattleboro and I was going up the street and there was a sign actually for Union Institute and University. And I didn't know what that was and I looked it up and I was like, oh, that sounds like an interesting program. And I went there to try to study mathematics, which was nuts. But But while I was there, they actually talk more about Goddard's history than Goddard does, which is fascinating. But because that program, the adult degree program that Union used to have, was the model that Evelyn Bates developed and started here, and then it was sold to Norwich University, and then it was sold to Union Institute University, and that's how I came to know Goddard by experiencing the adult degree program in that model. Goddard's history was embedded in that program. And then about five years after I finished my undergraduate with Union, I came for a Discover Goddard Day, and I felt like home. And I applied and came for my master's in individualized studies. So that's that's how I came here. And it just it just felt like home from the minute that I, I walked on campus. And and just about every time since, it has still felt that way. So so how did your study go while you were here? Because I've heard stories, you know, very different kinds of stories. Like one young woman that I spoke with, she said she spent the first three years really floundering around trying to figure out what it was that she was doing here. And it wasn't until the last year that she realized what she wanted to do. Right. Having come from the adult degree program, I had a pretty good sense of what I was going to have to do here. So I came in with a very clear plan. And today I regret that, actually. Wow. <laughs> because even though I'm, I'm happy with the project that I did, I didn't, I didn't do that discovery process that I've witnessed other people do since then. So I think I think there's a certain beauty and joy in coming in without that clear, distinct plan. And I and I followed my plan. Now I, you know, there were discoveries and and challenges and changes and and growth along the way. Of course, you know that's part of the. But I, I do have some regrets that I didn't play more in the beginning of my time. And in the master's program, we've only got you know two full years, so there's not a ton of time to play. But certainly, I wish I had a little bit more and and trusted the process here and not come in thinking that I already knew. I didn't have enough epistemic humility on my way in. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people feel very insecure about entering a situation like that without having a sense of knowing what they're doing. Because to to go to a place, to spend all this money mm-hmm. and make this commitment, I know I would feel very insecure and vulnerable going in without knowing what I want to do. It's mm-hmm. like... <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like, why am I doing this? Right. I'm getting a master's in what? Um, I'm spending $40,000 on what? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, 
you know, perhaps it's not so unreasonable to have come in with a plan. But I think I think the play and, you know, there's the mantra, trust the process. I yes. think the process is – That's like the, the unofficial mission <laughs> statement of <laughs> Goddard right. is trust the process. <laughs> I think so. And actually that was also – that was also the slogan that went around Union when I was there as an undergrad. It's less prominent in the PhD program at Union that I'm at now. But it was definitely carried from Goddard to Union <laughs> – in the ADP program. It's it's built into that model for sure. Trust the process. So I would imagine, and I could be totally wrong, but I would imagine that moving from undergraduate and then to master's level and then entering a PhD program, mm-hmm. you would approach that with more, much more of a sense of what you're aiming for and wanting to accomplish. My my reason for going into a PhD program is actually because I loved this model so much and just found so much joy in working within this environment that I was like, oh, you know, I would die to be faculty in this program. So how does one do that? <laughs> and I have a lot of corporate experience, you know, data engineer and stuff like that. that's not going to get me here. So I realized that perhaps the next step was to really study educational theory. So my PhDs in education studies and humanities and culture with a designated emphasis in education for social justice, because I think all of those things really allow me to hone in on the skills and the theory behind what education is and should be and how we could even innovate even within this model. You know, like I'm thinking about this idea of epistemic humility and how we could perhaps bring some new, fresh ideas into into this model or in some place that maybe has something similar or something like that. So it's kind of a dream and maybe someday I'll be back. <laughs> So that's what your dream is. Yes, yes. It is to be faculty advisor here at Goddard. Yeah, that would be a real treat for me, you know, because I have such an affinity for how this place works mm-hmm. and, and its history and hopefully its future mm-hmm. that I would love to be a part of that. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> I would love doing that myself. <laughs> I don't have any academic credentials. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stacking up the credentials. I'm not sure about that. Well, good luck with that. Well, thank you. I think you would be great here. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's been great talking with you. Absolutely. This has been fun. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you. And, um, yeah, good luck with your Ph.D. process and, and your dream of coming back here. I suspect – I strongly suspect you'll be here in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> I keep showing up, so <laughs> thank you. Chris Heggie is a graduate of Goddard College's Graduate Institute and recently returned as a visiting scholar. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. Looking for something amazing
It's almost like I've been stargazing The sky is right above me We were meant for something bigger than this Don't ever try to dismiss yourself Cause you don't have to so far away And now it's like the hidden taste I hold it close to me Oh, oh, oh we We're meant for something bigger than this Don't ever try to dismiss yourself cause you don't have to 